I have one or a couple questions for you before we get started tonight. It has nothing to do with the Bible, but it's on my heart because it's Super Bowl week. Is anyone excited for the Super Bowl on Sunday? Okay, Uh, not go Bears, but um, I am a Bears fan. That's why I can say it. But anyone rooting for the Rams on Sunday? Wow, nobody. Anyone rooting for the Bengals? Okay. I'll be honest, I said I was excited about Super Bowl week, but literally the other day I made plans for next Sunday night and then realized the Super Bowl. So I was like, scrap that, gotta watch the Super Bowl. But if you've been paying attention to the playoffs at all this year, you would know that it's been one of the best stretches of football I've ever seen in my entire life. Every single game has gone down to the wire, and as a Bears fan, since I've got no skin in the game because they're never in the playoffs, I just get to sit back and watch and enjoy some good football. But this last year, I would say that probably the best story of the NFL season has been the Cincinnati Bengals and that man, Joe Burrow. Like, I I don't know about you guys, I've never met a Bengals fan in my life, and I think there's probably a reason for that. Two things. One, Cincinnati is probably the most boring major city in the United States. I've been there before, and I I can't really remember anything good about it. I'm sorry if you're from Ohio. I'm really sorry if you're from Cincinnati, but I'll stand by that. Second, they are usually one of the most garbage teams in the NFL. I just got to say it like that. Two years ago, they had the number one overall pick. Last year, they had four wins. Usually, they're pretty forgettable. But this year, something got into them. They made a run. They made it to the playoffs, and they somehow even made it to the AFC championship. And some would call a team like this an underdog, right? And even if you don't like sports at all, we all love a good underdog story. Or sometimes they'll be called like a Cinderella story. Or if they have to go up against the mighty team in the league, we will usually use the terminology David versus Goliath. See what I'm doing there? I know, right? So watching the AFC Championship, the Bengals came up against the mighty Kansas City Chiefs. They've been to the Super Bowl the last two years. They have Patrick Mahomes. They had all the credibility in the world against the lowly Cincinnati Bengals. And if you watch the first half, until about one minute left, the the Chiefs were in control. 21 to 3, a late touchdown made it 21 to 10. And if you were a Chiefs fan going into that second half, you were probably like, going to our third straight Super Bowl, no issues here. I have no sweat with my man Patrick Mahomes in the second half. And if you're a Bengals fan, which I think we made it clear earlier, there are no Bengals fans, but if you were one, you were probably looking at the second half like, all right, I mean, we made it to the AFC Championship. That's cool. We've got next year. Something will happen, I guess. But then the second half unfolded, and somehow the Chiefs' offense was held in check, and the Bengals tied it up late in the fourth quarter, and then they went on to have an overtime win. And I was looking this week at different headlines, and multiple sports uh, articles were saying it was a David versus Goliath story. David had slain Goliath. And I don't hate this analogy, but I think it does a little bit of an injustice to the David versus Goliath story. I think part of this is because when we talk about David versus Goliath in the real world, when we call someone a David, we usually mean that they overcame some odds because of some grit and some toughness, and they had some youthful potential that no one else had seen yet. And that's, that's true of the actual David and Goliath story, but my issue with this is that it puts all the attention on David. It makes David the hero of the story. But if you look at David and Goliath, The story's not about David. David is a vessel in the story, and there is a much more powerful and meaningful story to be told here. 
And a little bit of context here. Who has heard of David versus Goliath before? Who knows the story? Most of you, right? David, the little shepherd boy, decided to get onto the battlefield with a slingshot and some stones. He shot one up at Goliath's head, knocked him over, and boom, he defeated Goliath. That's the story, right? Well, there's actually something much greater going on here. If you have your Bibles tonight, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we've got a lot to cover tonight, so I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit, doing a lot of summarizing, but we'll hone in on some verses at key moments. So I want you to grab your Bibles and open up there. If you have your phone, go to the version, whatever it looks like for you. I want to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. So at the beginning of the chapter, we see the Philistine army had gathered and was ready for war against Israel. And instead of coming out there with their armies and starting a big war and having thousands of lives be lost that day, they instead sent out one man, and his name was Goliath. And they said, if you can defeat Goliath, we'll be your servants. And if if Goliath defeats you, you will be our servants. Mano y mano, let's settle this like one-on-one. So Goliath stands out there in the middle of the battlefield, challenged the nations of Israel, and every single man in the army trembled in fear and ran away. And this story would continue for 40 days. And we see the story cut back to David and his father Jesse. David and his, his older three, three of his older brothers were in the army, and David was one of Saul's servants. And so David made his way back from the shep, being a shepherd and would bring things to Saul for 40 straight days. And then we get the story of how David was called to bring food to his brothers. That's all he had to do that day. So David brings his, the food to his brothers as his father Jesse had commanded in the Israeli army. And we see in verse 20, this starts to begin to happen. And then David gets up there and Goliath gets out there one more time, challenges the nation of Israel and they fear and tremble. And David says this line, who can defy the armies of the living God? So his oldest brother comes up to him and begins to scold him a little bit. And he tells him, get away, like you're just here to watch the battle go down. But before his brother could really do anything, word had already gotten to Saul about what David was saying. So David was brought before Saul, and and Saul was like, David, why would you want to fight in this battle? You're just a shepherd boy. What can you do? Then David recounts his shepherd background. He talks about how his life experiences actually gave him an edge on Goliath. And he proclaimed his confidence in how God would win the battle. And so Saul believed in him. He sent him out with a sword and a shield and some armor. And as David started to walk out there, he realized this doesn't fit him. This isn't who he is. So he left the typical battle weapons away. He took up a sling. He took up five stones. And he walked out onto that battlefield. And so then he goes out there and Goliath begins to taunt him. And if you look at verse 47, David says this iconic line to Goliath. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David began to rush onto the field. He slung a stone, and Goliath fell that day. This is a speed run of an incredible story in David's life, but there's a really cool convergence that's happening here. There's three really cool things about David's life and this story that I want to pick up on tonight because I think each of us can deeply relate to this. The first is that this story is influenced by David's shepherd upbringing. 
David's story was influenced by his past. You see, David was not like any of the men in Saul's army. People probably looked at David and thought, one day that man would be a good warrior. One day that man could stand in our army, but not now, not yet. But God saw his son that he had formed and shaped through life experiences that had brought him to this very moment. Malcolm Gladwell has written a book called David versus Goliath, perfectly named for this, this story we're talking about tonight. And he breaks down the ways that in many of our lives we grow up with disadvantages. We grow up with disabilities, and people will look at these things in our lives as weaknesses, but in reality, they can be used in powerful ways. The New Testament picks up on the same idea as well. If you want to thumb over to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about this thorn in the flesh that he had. We, we don't really know what this thorn is. It might have been a vision impairment. He may have had seizures or headaches, or some people even think it's just all the beatings he had taken from spreading the gospel for all these years. But he says he had cried out day after day, God, would you remove this thorn from my side? Would you remove this weakness in my life? And in verses 9 and 10, he says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. He goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's something about our weakness or our perceived weaknesses that God uses to flip the world upside down for his kingdom, for his kingdom's sake. So in the first half of this book, Malcolm Gladwell points out of three advantages that David actually had over Goliath in this battle. The first is that due to Goliath's extreme height, there's probably a scenario where he either suffered double vision or nearsightedness. So if you were to get right up next to Goliath, I'm sorry, he's going to pummel you. (laughs) You have no shot. He is going to take you down that day. But say you have a slingshot and you get some distance from him, you may have a little bit of an advantage. Point David. The second thing that Gladwell points out is that Goliath's heavy armor and weapons actually made him really slow, right? You see this giant walk up in front of you. He's clothed in bronze armor. He's carrying really heavy weapons. He's not going to be able to really move around all that quick. Again, we look at David. He strategically left the armor to the side. He kept his sling and his regular clothes. He had the speed advantage. If you're counting at home, that's two points for David. And the third thing that Gladwell points out is that David's sling was no joke. While for armies, they would use swords and shields, and to see a boy walk out on the battlefield with a slingshot and some stones, it would seem pretty foolish. But God knew what he was doing when he sent out David that day. He didn't send him out to be slaughtered. He sent him out for a purpose. David had grown up fighting off lions and bears and protecting his sheep with his slingshot for years. He was deadly with that weapon. And so, when he was called upon in a ranged attack and war, he was ready for the moment. For those keeping track at home, point three, David. 
and what was perceived as a weakness for David was used strategically by God. And it ended up making a difference in the story. For any other soldier who would have gone out there that day, it would have been the end for them, barring a miracle of God. But God, in his wisdom, used a small shepherd's boy, knowing that he was the right man for the job. And this isn't unique to David either. Throughout Scripture, we see all of these examples of God using people with perceived weaknesses or using improper circumstances to perform a miracle. You look at Jesus himself using five loaves of bread and a few fish, and he fed 5,000. Or you look at the story of Moses and his, his inability to speak well. He didn't have good public speaking skills, and yet God used him to go in front of Pharaoh and let his people go. Or you think of Jesus' call to 12 lowly men, the outcasts of society, And these 12 men became the foundation of the church that we now are a part of today. God is in the business of using unforeseen people and unforeseen circumstances to turn the world upside down. And each of you in this room tonight have a story. Each of you have been formed and shaped by your past and what God is doing in your life for a purpose today. Maybe you grew up in a broken home and you carry the testimony that God is a good father and that God is inviting you into his perfect kingdom tonight. Or maybe you struggle with depression and so you get to proclaim the eternal hope that you have in Jesus despite your circumstances. Or maybe you grew up in poverty and you know what it means to have nothing. And so now you boast in the riches of the grace of God. Or maybe you have a sin struggle in here tonight or you've had one in your past and it was a part of your story, but now you get to use it as a testimony to proclaim to others that there is a good life through Jesus available to you today. God wants to use your weaknesses for his glory. He doesn't use them for no reason at all. He calls you to be with him in this. We worship a God who uses each of us not in spite of our weaknesses, but through our weaknesses so that he can be glorified. And not only do we see David's past impact the story, but we see his future as an anointed king as well. It sounds like most of you have probably talked about for a little bit over these last few weeks about how David was an anointed king, right? You guys remember that? I'm guessing you've talked about this. And Saul was an awful king, and he waited in the wings, this little shepherd boy, ready for the day that he would take the throne. But Saul had no clue about this. There's only a few people that we know of that knew this, Jesse, his brothers, and the prophet Samuel. And nobody knew the time or the place when David would take the throne. All David knew is he had a platform coming one day. One day he had this platform coming, and even with this calling, even with David's destiny that he knew he was going to be king, we don't get a hint of pride. We don't get a hint of gamesmanship from David in this story. David wasn't playing Game of Thrones with this. He was just being faithful to the eternal king. And we see that throughout the story. David comes to the camp on command from his father, He wasn't planning to fight Goliath that day. He wasn't planning to make a stand and make a statement for himself. In fact, the only reason he fought Goliath with that day was because he called out the lack of faith in the rest of the Israeli army. It's the only reason he was called upon that day. 
David was the one who stood up and questioned why Israel would fear and tremble in the midst of one giant when they had the Lord of hosts at their back. And this is why David was anointed by God. It wasn't because he was burly and strong like Saul. It wasn't even because he was a little handsome boy that would one day grow up to look really great. In fact, the only reason that God had actually anointed him, in my opinion, is because of his character. And I know that David did a lot of terrible things later in his life, and there's plenty of examples of that. But this man went down in history as a man after God's own heart. And that's a pretty big deal. Something pretty geeky about me, honestly, and is that I was about to say I absolutely love reading, but I just really enjoy reading the old church fathers. When I was back at Lincoln Christian University, I got introduced to one of the most influential Christian writers and thinkers of, our t- of all time, next to the Apostle Paul. His name is St. Augustine. And in his book, The Confessions, he writes this iconic line, and he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. David was a man after God's own heart. David wasn't restless. In fact, in the moment when the rest of Israel feared and trembled in their boots, David was fine. David was ready. David was remaining firm and confident in the faithfulness and power of his God. David's eyes were fixed on the kingdom of God and not the Philistines. And he knew that the God of Israel was on their side, the God who never broke his promise, and he had nothing to fear. Students, you are anointed by God to do good works in Christ Jesus. You are anointed by God. Each of you that calls Jesus Lord have been gifted with the Holy Spirit, and it dwells within you. You have the presence of God that goes with you, and God has chosen you to help bring forth his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven today. That is the anointing that each of you have on your life. But God will not exalt the proud. He will not exalt, exalt the boastful. He is looking for those who are after his own heart. If you want to mark this down for later, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may exalt you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls aloud like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and confirm and establish you today. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Students, today and every single day, humble yourselves before the Lord. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. At the proper time, he will call upon you to be used in his name. Remain faithful 
every day, becoming a disciple day by day, following after his lead, and he will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you all for his glory. God chooses faithfulness and character over fame and competency every time. God doesn't need you to boast. He's literally God of the universe. He's got that part under control. God doesn't need you to be perfect. He doesn't need you to be the smartest or the strongest or the best at something. He just needs you to be faithful and submit to him. He just needs you to trust in his ways above your own. He just needs you to be humble before him. God used David because of his upbringing and his anointing. But ultimately, like I said earlier, the story isn't about David. And tonight, it's not about you, and it's not about me either. At the beginning, I talked about how I don't love the David and Goliath analogy because it puts the onus on David a little bit too much, in my opinion. It overemphasizes the power and the might of David in the story. The story of David and Goliath, it's not about David's power. If you look at the story and think solely about how great David is and think about how he just Philippians 4.13 Goliath or something, then you've got a warped view of Scripture. You've got a warped view of this Goliath story. You see, if we even look at the context of like a Philippians 14, I can do all things through Christ, he isn't just talking about how you're going to be really amazing at sports because of that or that you can magically beat your friend in a fight now because I can do all things. If you look at the context of this passage a little bit here, Paul in verses 10 through 12 is talking about how he's learned to be content in all situations. He has learned what it means to be poor and to be rich. He has learned what it means to be hungry and to be full. And in the midst of that, he can endure all things by the strength that God has given him. The story of David and Goliath is not about the power that David had. It's about what God can do. The story of David ultimately points us to God's divine strength, even with the advantages that David had in his upbringing. Even with his future as an anointed king, David himself pointed to the true strength. If we go back to verses 46 and 47, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, he said to Goliath and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Students, God created you in his image, and he brought you through your past. He brought you through your past circumstances. He's anointed you by his Holy Spirit to be co-heirs with Christ, but none of that matters without the power of our God. None of that matters without the power of the living God. There is no giant in your life. There is no obstacle in your life that you can slay or overcome without the power of the living God that lives with inside you. One of the craziest things about God to me is that he has chosen to partner with us in his redemptive work in this world. If you look at the story of the Bible, the main character is God himself. But 99 out of 100 times, he chooses us. He asks us to partner with him in his redemptive work. He thinks so highly of us as his creation that he desires partnership with us. 
even if we're only doing about 1% of the work. So what does that mean to have partnership with God? What does it mean to trust in the power of the living God and allow him to work through me? I think Jesus gives us a beautiful example of that in John 15. One of my favorite, actually, my favorite stretch of scripture is John 13 through 17. This account that Jesus gives of himself in the final supper, in the the upper room with his disciples. If you want a manual for spiritual formation and God's ultimate desire for us, it's in these chapters. And in John 15, Jesus compares, talks about this analogy of how he's the vine, the true vine. And he says in verses four through five, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. But if you abide in Jesus and in his power and in his strength, he will cause you to bear fruit in this life. And that's God's greatest desire for you. If you hear nothing else tonight, God's greatest desire is to be one with you. Like a vine and a branch, he wants to attach to you. He wants to be so close to you. He wants to restore his union with you. That is God's ultimate desire for you. That is the truth of the gospel right there. And if you don't believe me, you can flip a couple chapters over to John 17. In chapter 16, Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in this chapter, Jesus prays this beautiful prayer over his disciples. And then after he prays for his immediate disciples, he turns the prayer attention onto us. And it gets me every single time that the heart of the gospel is Jesus prays for us to be unified with him. And not just unified in mind in that we would not have bickering between us, but God wants to be one with us. He wants to restore the brokenness and separation of this world and be attached to us once again, like he was from the very beginning. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these things only, but I also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, and that they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he prays it again in verse 22. The glory that you've given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me as I love them. Students, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus desires to be near to you right now. Wherever your upbringing is, whatever your anointing is by God, ultimately he wants to use his power to restore his relationship with you. He wants to restore his union with you. He loves you that much. Students, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus desires that right now. He wants to be like a vine and a branch to you. He wants to surround you with his love. He wants to create in you a clean heart. 
Eternal life is not about the day you die and go to heaven. Eternal life begins the day you open yourself up to God's redemptive work in your life. We can live into eternity right now when you choose to abide in the true vine. The story of David and Goliath, it's about God. It's about his endless love for his people. It's about a shepherd boy whose desire to love God was honored by God and his love for him. In the story of David, we get a glimpse of what Jesus promised to his disciples in the upper room. And tonight, we get to worship and praise God for the eternity that Jesus bought with his blood and the power that he shows and that he desires to reconcile us to him tonight. Isn't it amazing that we serve a God whose power is used to restore relationship with him? That's the kind of love that God has for you tonight. Will you pray with me? Father, it's by your love, your love that is more powerful than anything in this world, your love that has the power to overcome death, to overcome the sin, to overcome the brokenness in our lives, and to restore us, to bring us back to who you created us to be. And so, Father, if there's anyone in here tonight who feels like their past is holding them back, or who feels like they haven't been equipped by God, who feels like they are weak, would you remind them that you make them strong through their weakness, that your glory, your power is shown best in their weakness. And Father, would you remind us again tonight of our anointing under you, that you have called us by the power of your Holy Spirit to go out and to share the gospel and to be the people who bring forth the kingdom today. But ultimately, God, would we lean on your power, your strength, your truth, and your love that is so radical, so irresistible, that it transforms us from the inside out. And there is nothing greater in this life, nothing greater in all of eternity than to be restored into your presence. We love you, Father. In his name we pray.